At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello everyone and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. I'm David Nutt and with me today is someone you've almost certainly all heard of. Uh, She's been a pioneer in the field of rationality in terms of drug policy for the last, well, a long time. You should tell us about how long in a minute. And it's Neve Eastwood, who is now the head of release, synonymous with that fantastic organization. Welcome, Neve. Just as you uh, introduced me, a bike goes by. <laughs> a very noisy bike. <laughs> so welcome, Neve, and uh, it's great to be talking to you. Well, it's an honor to be talking to you. And I can't believe it's taken us so long to do this. Well, you've been very busy, and uh, I've been pretty busy too. You're always busy. <laughs> so just tell her, I mean, I'd like people to tell me a bit about their background. And I mean, are you a lawyer? Or, well, I know, I know you as, as the person that runs release. I don't actually know why you run release. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and a member of Drug Science Committee as well. <laughs> So yeah, I started out as a lawyer. I wouldn't hold myself out as one now, mainly because I don't think I'm qualified enough anymore. But I moved to London in the 90s, studied at university, did a law degree, went to do the bar course, and then was desperate to work in the human rights sector. And a job came up at release and I applied. I think in the job interview, I said I would give my left arm for the position. Thankfully, they did not demand that. Then for about six, seven years, I was a legal advisor. So at Release, we provide legal services to people who use drugs, both through the National Helpline, where we help out folks who have been arrested for drug offences, very low-level drug offences, normally possession, cultivation of cannabis for personal use. So I manned the helpline, but then also did the outreach work, which is probably the main kind of stable of the the release lawyers daily experience where we go out into drug treatment centers, homeless centers, and provide legal advice and representation on uh, social welfare issues such as homelessness, housing insecurity, debt, and uh, access to welfare benefits. And so that's really that kind of client group that made me want to commit myself to this work, to dedicate myself to, to, to trying to find policy solutions that make the lives of people who really are on the margins. So those are the folks who would be using heroin or crack cocaine about making their lives more tolerable considering the way that they're treated by society. And so that's how I started, ended up being head of legal services because someone left their job, uh, then deputy director and then executive director from 2011, all career progression based on other people leaving. Okay, well... That's it. Yeah. So that's, you've got a good track record. I mean, you clearly, you know, you know, the background and the different disciplines within it. I mean, was it drugs that attracted you to it? The absurdity about drug policy? Or was it, you know? 
I think to a degree, yeah, yeah. So certainly, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland in the 1990s, I was very much part of the rave culture back then. I saw, you know, I experienced drugs. I saw the benefits that it could bring to society. You know, I would argue MDMA use maybe helped contribute to the peace process in Northern Ireland. You know, when I went out clubbing. Oh, really? Oh, we definitely come back to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like when I went, I, I think I've told this story anecdotally to people, never in a public space. So this will be a first so yeah, I was interested, but certainly it was the human rights aspect that I, I really wanted to use law to benefit kind of individuals, but also to make society a bit better. I suppose that's a bit kind of naive in a way, but I do believe that, you know, the world can become a better place. I'm, I'm not sure how long, much, how much more I will believe that, but you know, that was the kind of core of it. And then when I worked directly with people who had a history of heroin and crack cocaine, I was astounded by their resilience. Like just they took my breath away in the sense of if I had gone through a lot of what they went through as kids, I don't think I would be here today. And I had a lot of respect for the clients that I worked with and wanted to continue to, to work on policy issues and policy solutions, as I said, that would improve their lot. So you, did you come to London because you wanted to be a better lawyer? Yeah, well, I wanted to be in Northern Ireland as well. But London was somewhere I always wanted to live. But yeah, I mean, this is where I wanted to train. I wanted to be a, a lawyer in England and Wales. I, as I said, I, I initially trained to be a barrister, but then went to work in the third sector. I would say quite categorically that, you know, I wouldn't be able to practice anymore. The areas of law that we work in have changed so dramatically. So I'm very lucky to have a team of brilliant solicitors who work at Release and who do that work now. But also Release has a policy arm as well. It's not yeah. just uh, helping out, helping people who fall and found in the room. Absolutely. So, you I mean, and I think that's what's really kind of unique about release is we provide services directly to folks affected by the drug laws, folks who use drugs, whether recreationally or, or you know, you're a dependent. And it's their experiences that really inform the policy work that we do. And that's everything from kind of all of the policy work that we've done around harm reduction, so naloxone, making sure that all policy responses to government inquiries or to white papers or to proposed legislation centers the experience of people who use drugs within those responses. Also to the work we've done on racial disparities, very much came out of the experience of young black men who were coming to us for legal advice who have been subject to stop and search over and over and over again for drugs, largely for possession of cannabis. So all of that policy work really reflects the service delivery at the organisation. Yeah, I mean, that racial disparity paper of yours was just actually chilling in its, well, it's <laughs> disparity data, isn't it? Just share that with people. Not everyone will know exactly what you found and how frightening it was. So that work started seven years ago. So we've been working on this issue for, for a number of years now. And as I said, it really came out of the experiences of the people that we work with. So our offices at the time were in East London um, in the Shoreditch area. And we had staff who lived locally and some of the local kids would come to the office for advice because they had been stopped and searched maybe three, four times a week by police. Always smell of cannabis, always smell of cannabis. And so we could see really clearly that, you know, we knew that there was racial disparity in policing, but for us, it was like drugs, stop and searches drive that racial disparity. 
to drive the disproportionality in terms of the policing of drugs. And, and, and that was, you know, it was a tale that had been well told in the US. And there were colleagues in New York, New York, who had done research in this area through the Drug Policy Alliance, so Harry Levan and Deborah Peterson Small. And so, based on kind of the, the approach that they had taken, we at Release decided to look at this, the data, and we interrogated the statistics provided to us by the Met Police and every police force in the country, and were able to show that Black people were at that time six times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs. It's now nine times. And that's despite the government's own statistics saying that drug use is lower amongst the black community compared to the white community. Um, and in fact, the Her Majesty's Inspector and Constabulary, who, who we're external reviewers for, but they did an analysis of stop and search and actually found that black people were less likely to be found in possession of drugs. So it's not just they're less likely to use it, less likely to be found in possession, but also more likely to be targeted. And that research really allowed us to show that the UK experience is very similar to the US experience in that the the drug policy, drug law enforcement, the war on drugs, if you wish, is, is very much focused on controlling the lives of people of colour and those living in deprivation. So, well, we know that the origins of at least the recent war on drugs was certainly partly racial, but why is it in Britain? Is it is it that the police are just racist or is it they, they still have this kind of myth or, you know, fantasy that, that drugs and black people actually go together? Ah, that's the unconscious bias argument or whether it's an intentional activity. If I'm honest, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think that you just have to look at last summer, for example, when we were in full lockdown in May 2020. I mean, when we went into lockdown, David, I thought, I mean, the one positive outcome would be that we would see a reduction in stop and search. You know, I think it's been well evidenced both by academics across the UK, but also by the Home Office themselves that stop and search doesn't deter crime. And, and the work that I've done in this area over the years has really demonstrated to me the harms it causes to communities so that these are communities that are over-policed, underserved, and therefore are really not willing to come forward to police if they're victims of crimes, if they're witnesses of crimes, and often will take matters into their own hands, hands because of that relationship. So going into lockdown last year, I was like, well, least stop and search were would fall and then on the helpline in april late april we started to get a lot of calls from people who just described the most horrific experiences um so a woman in a park in east london who had gone out for her hours stroll and she'd taken a seat she got up she tucks in her shirt police come up and say she's trying to conceal drugs now she they carry out a stop search they don't find anything and they carry out then a strip search. They take her to a police station and they strip search her. Other reports of people being stopped while they're driving. And, and, and the, the, the theme amongst it all, the common denominator was the black people. And they described themselves as feeling as if they had been racially profiled. And so we looked at the Metropolitan Police stats, um, so the police force for London, and we were overwhelmed by what had happened. In March 2020, the figures were about 24,000 stop and searches carried out. 60% of those are for drugs. And that was, that was probably reflective of an average month in the last two years. In April, it had increased to just over 30,000 stops. And by May, it was over 43,000 stop and searches. 60% were for drugs. This was largely for possession, 
largely for possession of cannabis. So for me, that really speaks to like, why in the middle of a pandemic were the police increasing the use of a power that negatively impacts on communities, targeting those communities, communities who are at greater risk of COVID, the worst aspects of COVID. Yeah. COVID. So for me, you know, it really does speak to the, the, the idea of structural racism in society and, the, and the, the police had nothing to do. And so with this free time, they decided to go and harass communities. So at its core, I think probably more racism than unconscious bias. And even with the, the cops that, that try to do a good job, I think there is a level of unconscious bias there. And it's hard to weed that out. Well, there's no more, they're not incentivized, presumably, still to cut. It used to be they were incentivized to cut people with cannabis possession. That was something that happened back under Labour in the, the team. That's right. That's right. It was awful. The, the public framework outcomes up until like 2010, and then Theresa May rolled back, but it didn't change behavior. I mean, we did see stop and searches fall, and dr- fall dramatically under May. We're starting to see that trend reverse. And I think that shows again the kind of political will impacting on police practices. Absolutely. I mean, just let's talk a bit more about cannabis. I mean, I've never really understood why it did create such hysteria in the police and politicians. And, you know, have you ever come up made any sense of this or is it just part and parcel of this racism? You've been intimately involved in these conversations over the years, especially, you know, the whole reclassification debacle. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I just think kind of this is an, an, an easy political tool, and it's you know clearly been heavily sort of promoted as a dangerous drug by interests such as the drinks industry and that. And, um, but also, I just think it is there's also a sort of you know the class and, and and this supposed racial difference in use. Although we know, I think you know the data is, and you have the data that you've just shown and talked to us about it. That, you know, white kids get stopped. They don't know, it's likely to be in possession, but it's likely to be stopped. Yeah, completely. And I think if, if we kind of, you know, look at the science that you've done around this, you know, we know cannabis is not as harmful as, as the two legal substances that we have. And yet it is the, the drug, if you like, that drives policing in this area. I mean, none of the other drugs attract the same level of, a kind of law enforcement response, heroin, but particularly amongst kind of the visible street using population of people who use heroin. But it really is cannabis. I mean, I think, again, the work that we've done in this area, particularly with Her Majesty's Inspectorate on Constabulary, has shown that of all those drug stop and searches, that about 70% of those are for uh, possession only. So this is not about disrupting the supply chain. This is very much about focusing in of folks who use drugs. And then from that 70%, it's probably two thirds of that number is for cannabis possession. So why is this such a kind of political and policing priority, considering we know the kind of safety profile of this drug? It just, it, it, it's you know another example of the, the ludicrous drug policy that we have. And again, I think, you know, one of the things we've been able to show in the research is very much that idea of police using this to control individuals and to control communities. So we were able to show in the both reports. So the first report we did was in 2014, the numbers in black and white, and then the second was in 2018, the color of injustice. And we were able to show that within London, particularly, 
across the boroughs that had the highest level of deprivation across multiple indices, that in those areas you had the highest level of policing. So, so stop and search, drug stop and search, where there was an intense use of that power within those communities. Lower rates of racial disparity, so two to three times more likely to be stopped in, in the poorer area, areas. So we're talking Newham, Tower Hill, sorry, Tower Hamlets, some parts of Camden, but really high levels of stop searches. Conversely, in the affluent areas like Richmond and Kingston and Pont Thames, lower rates of stop and search, but higher rates of racial disparity. So that really speaks to the idea of geographical profiling and individual profiling. So where communities are being kind of coerced, controlled and surveilled using these laws in inner city areas. And on the other side of that, kind of protecting property in areas of affluence questioning why someone is in that area when through discrimination and racism the police officer views them as not belonging quite quite you also i think had some interesting success in relation to the legitimacy of uh, stopping search just because people smell of cannabis so you want to tell us that's been an ongoing battle Yeah, we did. So we also, a, a lot of this work has uh, allowed us to operate in, like, conversely, because, or sort of surprisingly, because it, it, it's quite critical, obviously, of policing. It's actually led to us being invited into policing spaces with those people who are part of law enforcement who wanted to change. And there is a cohort of people who are like that. And so the College of Policing were doing a whole review of stop and search and um, they were developing the, the professional guidelines for the use of stop and search by police officers. And so working with them, we got a requirement added that you couldn't stop someone on the on the sole ground that you could smell cannabis. I mean, you know, David, you walk down a street in any city, whether it be Bristol or London, you know, you could smell it. But could you say where it came from? <laughs> I don't think so. And so in those circumstances, it was agreed that that would be the professional practice. Now, a lot of there was a lot of police force pushback on it. There was one police force in particular that refused to follow the it's called the authorized uh, professional practice guidelines from the College of Policing because of that requirement. Other police forces, though, what they did was because it couldn't be the sole ground, they added a ground. So I could smell cannabis and you had red eyes. So they'll always find that, you know, they'll find a way. Around <laughs> but also, having taken cannabis is not illegal. <laughs> no, it's not. It's possession of it. But they would say that that in itself gives them reasonable grounds to believe that you are in possession of cannabis. So, yeah, they'll get away, right? Which is why we need to, you know, now, I remember when, when I first met you, I think, was quite a few years ago. The thing at the time was this, the rise of the sniffer dog and the sniffer dogs in the tube station. I mean, I remember being horrified by both the absurdity of it and the, not just in terms of the fact that the, you know, the, there's no evidence that the dogs could actually sniff things out, but the, the, the idea that you would just search anyone coming out of a tube station because you had a sniffer dog sniffing around. I, it's totally... You know, <laughs> You managed to get that. I think you got rid of the sniffer dogs, didn't you? I, I seem to recall they don't do it anymore. Yeah, so we got British Transport Police to agree to not have sniffer dogs on the station. And that was quite a, a you know, 
again, I mean, that, that's where the work around policing has led to us being invited into spaces. And Adrian Hanstock, who was the deputy chief for the British Transport Police, still is, he was concerned about the fact you mean, that sniffer dogs were being used to detect drugs. And, and as you know, David, I mean, these, these dogs are trained specifically on, you'll get the, the sniffer dogs for drugs and then you'll get the, the sniffer dogs for explosives, etc. So they are all trained on, on their, their individual area of expertise, if you like. And he had done a bit of work to look at, you know, how much is seized through drug searches on British Transport Police. And I think in a year, it was something like a kilo's worth. It was nothing. There was nothing of any, you know, huge significance. And we had really highlighted how the the, the guidance on sniffer dogs was being abused because it does clearly state that you shouldn't funnel people through ticket barriers, etc. But that's what was happening in practice. And he was also concerned that that it could lead to, you know, if if there was something serious that had happened on on the transport system, it would be quite hard for them to respond if they're also trying to deal with policing small amounts of drugs. So there was a period of time, and I think it is still the case that they're not, they don't have sniffer dogs, uh, British Transport Police don't use sniffer dogs for drug searches. I can't remember why they started. (laughs) why they started oh that's I mean but that's I mean the use of dogs generally for drugs is problematic I mean I think the work of Amber Marks who's one of our trustees in this area has been really informative she wrote a a brilliant book on it on the whole area of of, of olfactory detection and one of the things that that we found was that research has shown I think in 70 percent 80 percent of cases the dogs find no drugs now when you say that to the police (laughs) handle They say that's because the dogs are so, so sensitive. They can tell if you've been in contact with someone who's used drugs in the last like two days. It's it's like clearly that's not the case. But even if it were the case, that's not not getting you the right to be searched on a police, on a tube. Exactly. So, yeah, so that was another kind of soft win that we had. And I think, you know, the example of the work by British Transport Police and others shows that that there has been a willingness in the past. But I think a lot of that work is just, you know, moving the deck chairs and actually for wholesale resp- reform, we need to be looking at things like the, the policies we advocate for, which are like decriminalization of all pos- possession of all drugs. And also, you know, starting to look at, at, at regulation of the different drugs moving forward. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. I just want to, I just want to fit, I mean, so you're also involved in driving offences, aren't you? You, you people who get stopped, tested, roadside testing. I mean, you know, I often send them to people that come to me, I move on to you. What's, what's happening there these days? Well, as I said, I mean, I think what we did at the time, and this is a piece of work when it came in, was really highlight how the thresholds that were in place were not, they weren't necessarily representative that somebody was under the influence. I mean, we would still argue that being under the influence is a better measure of someone's uh, ability to drive and then strict thresholds particularly with cannabis you know as you know if someone tests positive for cannabis it could have been in the system for a number of days or a number of weeks so there are problems with that it is a difficult one to challenge um you I mean really what we do in the area is give people legal advice over the phone often that is just about how to get the least punitive sentence but that's kind of the work that we've done on that area I mean, you, I take the view that the drug driving laws were brought in largely as just another way of 
trying to deter people from using drugs. They have nothing to do with driving. It's just, an, it's just moving the dog from the, from the dog handler from the tube station to it being a, a swab in a policeman's hand. Right? Yeah, totally. It's backdoor criminalization. Yeah, completely is. And where does it come from? You, you know, you've, look, you've spent 30 years now on the other side of lawyers who are trying to convict people of these offences. You know, why is society, why are they so, why are they so scared of drugs? Why do they, so, why do they want to punish people? What's your, what's your take on it? 100-year propaganda war, you know? It's just stupid. It's, people, just buy, people just buy into the myth that drugs are bad and drug users are bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have had a proper 100 Pro, you know, a hundred year propaganda war. I mean, you, you often hear from prohibitionists about this this supposed well-funded reform movement. I'd love to know where this well-funded reform movement is. But also to, you I mean, what do you think government's been funding for the last how many decades? I mean, that is literally telling people how dangerous these substances are. And the work you do and drug science does in this area is so important, that kind of debunking how harmful substances are. Substances are substances. They have their utility and they can have their harms. They can have their pleasures. And I think that's something in the field that we're getting better of talk, about talking talking about is, is the, the pleasure associated with using drugs. Like most people use MDMA or psychedelics or you know cocaine, heroin for a good reason. There's a rational reason behind it. And it's our job, I think, to start to talk not just about the harms of drug policy, but the positives of drugs. And, and, and nowhere do we see that more clearly than cannabis as a medicine or the psychedelics as a medicine. But beyond the, the medicinal use of these substances is also the fact that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people every year who use a array of different controlled drugs because they enjoy it. They find it is socially bonding. They have pleasurable experiences. And I think part of us waging our own kind of response to that propaganda war is to start to take the debate out of the constant kind of harmful sphere that drugs are harmful, dealers are dangerous, therefore we need to control them. And actually add to that conversation by saying, these drugs actually can cause a lot of, of good in society. You know that a young person using MDMA, the biggest risk that they will face is a, two biggest risks will be the unregulated nature of the market, meaning that they don't know what's in their substance. And then also to the, the risk of law enforcement and depending on your, you know, where you come from and who you are, that risk will either increase or decrease. So if you're, you know, young and black, you're at a greater risk of, of detection by law enforcement than if you're young, middle class and white. So I think those are the risks, but but those young people are out having a good time. They're enjoying that experience. They they choose to do it because they are, you know, it brings them joy. And so I think some of those conversations need to be brought into the mainstream more and more. Because I know when I do media, for example, and I think, you know, I, I don't know what your experience is, but I often go to the the, the harmful place, you know, we've got the highest rates of drug-related death on record, which is absolutely right. And it is an absolutely abhorrent situation and policy reform like decriminalization and regulation and safe supply of drugs can go to address that but again we are kind of reinforcing the constant kind of negatives and i think some of the conversation has to be talking about positives as well yeah well you know i tried to i tried to argue that there were alternatives to alcohol 
<laughs> yeah, and as you said, I mean, it's interesting, kind of the corporate interest side of things as well. You know, that protectionist that you know, I think you and I have talked before about medical cannabis and how how interesting it is that there are certain products that are scheduled based on the date of product licensing, etc., and that they're scheduled like that within the drug laws. And that, to me, speaks of kind of corporate interest being actually very clearly being protected within that framework. And so if that's being protected within, you know, recognized medical products that are, are, are associated with the cannabis industry, then it's it's not that far out to suggest that, you know, the, the alcohol industry and others have ha, have not been supporters of reform, despite the, the, the significant harms that we've all evidenced are associated with prohibition. Absolutely, yeah. Let's talk a bit more about release then. So you're a, you're a charity, and I know I know I was not on a charity, which you're part of drug science. It's quite hard work raising funds. How do you guys manage it? And how have you, how can you be so successful? It's hard work. Like it is hard work. So I mean that's that's one of the reasons I'm no longer a, a legal advisor at releases. You know, half my job is fundraising. I think what we've done over the years is just been very good at what we do and make sure that we provide a really high quality service to the clients that we work with, that we produce high quality research and that we build our reputation. I would say in the last 10 years, releases probably, and I touch wood a lot as, as director of the organization to make sure that whether it's a funding application or, you know, keeping staff, I, I, that's, that's one of my totems. And touching wood, we've been financially stable for the last 10 years. And that's largely through having a mixed model of funding whereby we contract some of our services out. We have a lot of support from trust and foundations. We get a lot of funding towards, not a lot, but we get funding towards the delivery of our legal services as well. And so having that kind of service delivery alongside the policy work has made it a, a reasonably viable organization financially. And it's just a joint, to be fair, the staff are just, the team are amazing. I've got a great board as well, but the team are really just such a dedicated bunch of lawyers. They really care about the rights of the people that we work with and we work for. And I think that really comes through in everything that we do. And it comes, it, it's quite clearly articulated to funders and and to foundations that are interested, not just in drug policy, but also in legal services to some of the most vulnerable and the, the most marginalized in society. And you do do research for governmental or for, uh, for governmental authorities then. You know, they, you're not uh, beyond the pale in that sense. No, 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 we're not. We, we, I keep trying to make us beyond the pale, but no. So we don't do, we're not government funded at all. We have no funding from government. Oh, you're not? Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, no, no, I have no. We haven't had. No, I, I thought you. I thought you got grants from you know to do reports and things. No. Oh no, we haven't had any government oh, funding. I, um, I mean, the last time we got funding from the Home Office was, I think, in the early tens to do a sex workers booklet. So sex workers in the law booklet. So we wrote a legal booklet outlining what the offences are, how do how, how do sex workers pay tax legally, that kind of thing. So that was like 2010, 2011. So we haven't had any funding in the last. 10 years. Mainly it's trust foundations, income generation through contracts with local government and uh, a few t-shirt sales. Nice people take drug sales. Yes. 
Well, you did have that wonderful, um, extraordinary, controversial advertising campaign. I don't know if it was your idea. We did. Nice people take drugs. I mean, that that created more hysteria than probably <laughs> well, than me telling people that horse riding is more dangerous than exercise. I don't know. I think I think you've got more publicity than me. That's, tell us a bit. Of- Oh, I don't know. I think you're, 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 I think the horse riding got a, a lot of publicity dealers. But it was truly the first time anyone had really dared tell the truth. And that's in, in a sort of, in a, in a, you know, on the side of buses, you're telling people yeah. that, I mean, that was just truly, can you, I mean, I'm fascinated by the origins of it. I've never really spoken with you about it before. Yeah, so we had, this was 2008, and we had been left some money, and we decided we wanted to, in a legacy, and we decided we wanted to do a campaign for it, with it. I think it was it was after, the year after, do you remember the atheist campaign on the buses? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Was it No Such Thing as God, something like that? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And so we decided we'd do a bus campaign. And so if you're going to do that, you need something that's, you know, you need a, a, a strong, uh, provocative slogan. And I remember quite clearly sitting down with the previous executive director, Sebastian Saville, who wanted, he was the lead on it with our policy and comms person and having a chat about what the slogan should be. And we wanted a benign word to describe people who use drugs. So not like one of the things that we were very clear on was that there's so much value and judgment that's messaged out against people who use drugs, you know, so bad, evil, you know, you think about the the single convention on narcotic drugs at the UN, it's the only treaty apart from sex work that has the word evil in it. Um, So sex and drugs, evil. evil. So all these value words, judgment words, we wanted to try and stay away from that kind of word. Uh, and, And nice seemed to be, still has a value to it, judgment it, but it seemed to be the most benign of them so we nice people so nice people take drugs then there was a long conversation about the word too which i remember oh. you know, nice people take drugs too which i felt would sort of focus it on the good drug user and the bad drug user and that's a terrible journey to take when you believe in the rights of all people who use drugs and so we instructed the the agency who are responsible for advertising on London Transport on the, the system, and they approved the slogan. It went up on the buses, and then the bus company complained and demanded it be removed from the bus, which meant loads of free advertising. Oh, sure. Because the next thing we were, you know, that we were trying to be muzzled, that free speech was being affected, etc. But also, too, we didn't have to pay for the campaign because the advertising company had approved it. So they had frustrated the contract. So we got a completely free campaign as well. And that was worth 10,000 pounds at the time. I can believe that. But it was the you know the beginnings of a public discourse on, on actually what drug taking is about as opposed to drug takers and even as you say. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And you I mean, I was very much, when we talk about nice people who take drugs, we are very much talking about the people we work with in the services. So those folks who have a history of heroin and crack cocaine use, because my experience, and I know you've worked in the field a long time, is those people are just lovely people in the main. You'll get one or two, but you get one or two in every walk of life. Yes, whereas maybe politicians who take drugs aren't such nice people. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. That's another. 
Then we did the playing cards, of course. You mentioned the politicians. Yeah, the, the usual playing cards, absolutely. Yeah. yeah still usual cards. I love particularly the, 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 yes, the Johnson one, <laughs> the Boris one. Yeah. Which is my favourite, of course, now. I play it every lecture. Are they still available, those cards? Yeah, of course they are. We've updated them. We, the, the only problem is we constantly have to update them, not least because Boris Johnson seems to have a new job every year. Um, but we updated them a couple about four years ago, and we added Duterte to it. So this is our playing cards that feature politicians who uphold prohibition, who have themselves admitted to drug use, who, had they been caught, would not be in the position that they are today. And so the playing cards um, feature politicians from all over the world. Our one condition is generally not to have someone who is pro-reform on there. But we added Duterte after he admitted to cannabis use and to fentanyl. His fentanyl is prescribed, but his uh, doctor said that he was developing a dependency. And considering the brutal war that he's undertaken in the Philippines, it seemed right. What we didn't expect to happen was that for the cards that we produced that featured him, ended up on CNN in the Philippines with his office making a statement in response to the card uh, supporting free speech, which was bizarre and just slightly, it's actually really dispiriting that that became a news item considering how brutal and bloody and violent his premiership has been. Like that actually really kind of angered me in a way that that was thought as newsworthy when people are being killed on the streets. Well, as a distraction. But so how do you get a card? Can you, you're on a release website. You can buy them, can you? You can. We'll have them back up next month. Just we can't let down because nobody's in the office at the minute. We have to send these things out. But yeah, it should be back up in July. I encourage, I encourage all, all our listeners to, uh, and there'll be thousands of them to, uh, to get a pack. They're absolute classics. And you can play cards with them. You don't just have to turn them into slides like I do. <laughs> Absolutely. I have people who buy. They were really happy when we created a second packet with a different design because they use it for bridge. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I just before we finish, I just want to so say you've touched on it. Does release have a sort of policy now on what drug policy should be? Do you, how would you like to see this being performed and, and what hope is there in that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the first step for us is decriminalization of all drugs. So that's removing criminal sanctions for anyone caught in possession of any substance. And that's largely because we think that we're, we're a little bit off before we're, we're talking about cocaine and, and heroin regulated markets. So that would be our first step. And I think in particular, what we are advocating for now is a no punishment model. We're starting to see signs that that's something that the other jurisdictions are considering. So Vancouver at the moment have uh, announced that they will be decriminalizing drug possession and they've put forward that anyone caught in possession will simply get a voluntary referral to a advice agency, a treatment agency. So I, I think that's something that we would really like to see first and foremost. We'd like, if we recognize that the harms of drug policy includes drug policing, I think it'd be good to try and, you know, deprioritize this for police quite significantly. And, and a way of doing that is not to have a sanction. Then after that, let's look at regulation. So one piece of work that we are focused on at the minute is uh, cannabis regulation. It's inevitable that the UK is going to regulate cannabis. A third of the US has now got access, legal access to a 
to the supply and production and, and possession of cannabis. How that's done matters. And we really are focused on promoting a social equity approach. Again, as drug policy campaigners, if we spent the last decades highlighting the harms of drug policy, including how it's impacted on certain communities, then we have to have solutions that actually bring those communities into the new drug policy framework. So very much looking at those communities that have been over-policed and underserved, being able to participate in the market if they wish to do so. So New York, for example, has just legalized cannabis and what they will have is uh, financial and technical support to allow people who are part of the illicit market move into the illicit market. And I think that's good from both a social justice perspective, a racial justice perspective, but from an economic yeah, perspective yeah. and from a policing perspective. You know, if you've got if you recognize that this benefits certain communities, it puts food on the tables, the cannabis trade, then you need to make sure you're providing people with opportunities to, to continue to sustain their, their existence. And then things like, you know, making sure that people's criminal records are expunged, that they don't continue to, to carry the burden of a criminal record for a cannabis-related offence moving forward. Folks are released from prison who are currently in prison for cannabis-related offences. So those kind of solutions as part of a regulated, regulated framework. Well, I completely endorse everything you said, and I'm hoping that drug science can be part of the... Uh... The process which helped you to make that uh, a realization. Neve, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go, I would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do and ask David anything, part two. Enjoy. Hi, David and everyone. Thank you so much for doing this. So I'm trying to contribute to the same mission, but from a little bit of a different angle. I'm studying social epidemiology, and I want to, I'm hoping to do research on the life force perspective of addiction and the biopsychosocial model and intergenerational gene environment interaction. And with that in mind, I was wondering, what's your take on the developmental disorder view on addiction rather than the disease model, as you probably know, promoted by Mark Lewis and others? Yeah, well, addiction is complicated. And I, I don't think that is even a question in a way. People use drugs for different reasons. But certainly, you know, disadvantage is a huge vulnerability to drug use. And the example I give always, you know, if, you, if you're brought up in a Glasgow tenement, you know, where you've got, you know, two rooms, six people, the lift doesn't work, and you're unemployed, and you can't afford even to go to the soccer match. And then someone gives you a, you know, a hit of smack, and you go from being in one of the most miserable places on earth to heaven. Well, <laughs> what's there not to like about taking another dose? You know, I mean, it's, 
so I'm very sympathetic to that argument. You know, escaping from the misery of life is a really major factor in why people take drugs. But there are other reasons as well. <laughs>